Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have the one, the only, Walt McKinley on the show. And he's going to tell us an unbelievable and incredible story. And um, yeah, you guys are going to, you're going to really, you're going to really dig this one. So do me a favor and make sure that you go ahead and share this thing out and let's, let's get some people in here. So hang tight. I'll be right back and I'll bring Walt on the show. And we are back. Let me bring Walt on. Walt, welcome to the show. Ken, what's going on, brother? I'm so happy to be here with you today. Um, and I love that whole intro video where it breaks through the walls because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So I can't wait. Hey, I hear my I hear our show playing on your phone. Oh, you do because I shared it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let me uh, let me close my screen. Okay, we're there good. We go. There we go. So. Um, it's Lynn Serrano's watching. Hey, Lynn, love you too. So, so Walt, I started this over four years ago, and um, I, I've interviewed in the neighborhood of 450-ish celebrities and entrepreneurs and great people. And um, I look, I started this to, to help people have a breakthrough, to get unstuck in life. And... Um, I, I think that you have an incredible story. I can't wait to hear it all. So let's start with where you were born and raised. So I was born in Yuma, Arizona, a little town on the southwestern um, border next to California and Mexico. But where I was raised was really all over the place. So I moved 14 times in the first 16 years of my life, um, literally everywhere from Southern California to Yuma, Arizona, um, all the way to Indiana. And then I spent 20 years in the Navy and retired from the Navy. So I have literally been transient my entire life, but I now call home uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So it's been a wow. lot of fun. Well, thank you for your service. Thank you for that. That That's, um, that's incredible. So talk about, you know, um, where, so you, it all started in Yuma, Arizona for you. Um, how old were you the first time you moved or do you even remember? I don't, I know how old I was, but I don't remember. So um, I started out in Yuma, Arizona. It's where the bulk of my father's side of my family is at. Um, pretty quickly, my father moved with my mother uh, to Southern California. And then she, because of the abuse that she was going through, because of the abuse we were going through as young children, um, she moved uh, to him at California. And then it was a, kind of like random shifts between every single place we lived out in Southern California based upon her running or what parent we lived in or what foster home we lived in based upon the things that were happening to us. Wait a minute. <clears throat> so you, your mother was going through abuse. That's right. Uh, you know, I love the quote, your history doesn't define 
your destiny by TD Jakes. I've kind of switched it to your history doesn't define your legacy because legacy is a big word for me. And so my family has experienced generational traumas of abuse. Um, and really, my father continued that generational trauma um, by abusing my mother, who had also went through hers. And so um, from my beginnings, from my very humble beginnings, there was a lot of abuse, uh, verbal, physical, um, you know, being neglected, just narcissism, any type of type of abuse you can think of, we went through. Um, and it, it led to an extraordinarily tumultuous childhood for me. Um, but it also led to an extraordinarily triumphant comeback at the same time. So when you say abuse, this, this was your father. That's right. It was, it was my father at that point in my life, but my mother, when he left my, when she left my father, she got with a man who continued that generational cycle for her. He was abusive, not only to her, but to myself and my older sister at the time, we weren't his kids. Um, and we got taken out of the home and then we went into foster homes at two years old and we continue to be abused uh, pretty horrifically and sadistically in those foster homes too. Wow. Um, wow. 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 So you were in California, your mom ran basically. Did, mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming they got a divorce of some sort. Um, so she ran, took the kids with her to California um, because of the abuse that she was going through and you were going through from your father. That's right. My, my mother, she, she ran to Southern California, ended up living with a lady who let us stay there for free. And then, um, you know, I have an older sister that's two years older than me. She ended up getting with another man who abused her, who also abused us. We were removed from the home. We went into foster homes. And we were sadistically abused in those foster homes, too. And then it was from that point moving on, it was really a shell game between both of my parents who either dropped us off on each other's doorsteps or um, who literally, and we could talk about this during the show, would kidnap us in the middle of a school day and move us to a different part of the state where the other parent lived at. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty crazy wild ride, Can you know, abused by every single person adult my life until I was almost 16 years old stepmothers you know that was with my father stepfathers that was with my mother both my parents and then that foster home that we did live in and uh it's been a been a pretty wild and crazy ride but it's made me who I am today and uh and I love that part of it sure um and I you know I've personally got experience with a lot of that and and you know I always I always say I'm grateful for what I went through because it made me who I am today, you know, and, and, and helped me be able to relate to others that are, are going through it. But so what, what, um, I mean, as a kid going through this, I mean, it sounds like it, it started pretty early in life. Um, <clears throat> did you find yourself, um, rebelling in trouble at all as you I got older? I didn't until my late teens. You know, it, my early childhood, I mean, I was locked in basements. I was chained to beds. Like I said, it's pretty horrific child abuse. And so wow. I was a really quiet kid. Um, at two years old, uh, the, the state of uh, California, um, at almost three actually, said I was unintelligible and garbled. I read in some court documents as I did research for some things that I was working on. 
And um, and I was very quiet. I was timid. I stuttered. Um, I, I flinched when adults came past me. You know, I, all the things that you would think somebody who went through that kind of horrific abuse and endured those things would do. Then as I got into my late teens and the testosterone things hit, like I became more physical. Um, yeah. I, I started stealing all the things that stereotypically I should be at that point. Um, and I lived kind of in that pattern until I went into the Navy at 19 years old. So. So I'm assuming you graduated high school. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you were, were you in California? Were, I know you were back and forth between Arizona, California, Indiana. You said Indiana at one point. That's right. At one point, we lived in Southern California. My dad had just dropped uh, me off on my mother's doorstep with my older sister and said, I don't want to take care of the kids. You got them. My mother and my stepfather. And at that point now, my one-year-old-ish little sister, they- ha Like a, a half-sister? Half-sister, right. Yeah. It was from my okay. stepfather and my mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they decided they were moving to Indiana before we ever got dropped off on the doorstep. So we ended up moving back there. That's where my mother's family was from. And that's the moments in that dark basement in Indiana, in Lafayette, Indiana, when I was, um, you know, that became my punishment um, for my stepfather. The, the kicking, slapping, punching, throwing me against walls wasn't good enough. He started locking me into the basement, um, the unfinished basement we had down there in the dark. And that lasted until I was almost 10. And then I got put on a plane when she left my stepfather to go back to Arizona. And then I ended up in Arizona um, or San Diego and then Yuma, Arizona for the rest of my childhood until I was um, 15 and a half with my father, testified against him in court at 16 years old, and then moved in with an aunt, the youngest sister of eight. Um, my father was the oldest brother, moved in with my aunt. And then that really started my comeback story because somebody had the courage to actually show me some love along the way. I don't know that it's, it takes courage to show love, <laughs> but, but I mean, I get what you're saying though, but at, at, and I get it. I totally can relate mm -hmm. to it. Like, like you feel like it, it's a courageous act for somebody to love you after an entire childhood, years and years and years of, of ungodly abuse and, and um, wow, man. So, so, at 15 and a half, you moved in with your aunt. Mm -hmm. She showed you love probably for the first, you felt like for the first time in your life. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and talk a little bit about that. What was that like? I mean, here you are 15 years into life and it's been crazy and for the very first time, you're feeling love from someone. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think for me, and this is why I say courageous, Ken. This is this is an important piece of the story. So my dad was the oldest brother of eight. My aunt was the youngest sister of eight. My dad was a bully. He wasn't a big guy, but he was a bully. So if anybody yeah. ever tried to intervene with us, he would threaten to call the cops. He would literally go to your house and get in your face, um, you know, and try to physically hurt you. And so he was just a bully. And, and so it really took courage from her because in the face mm. of the rest of my family who said, well, that's not really our place to step in. She said, no, I'm going to step in and I'm going to take a chance on this 15 and a half year old wow. broken into a million pieces kid. 
mind you, she had just got married. She had a two-year-old son. So really, when I say courage, that's the courage I'm talking about, the courage to take action when everybody else was standing on the sidelines. And so wow. she um, she just really showed me love in a way that I needed. And honestly, yeah. this is why I think things happen for you and not to you. Nobody else in my family could have done what she did in a short period of time. She was younger. Her husband, um, Rick, was amazing to me. And they really just showed me love in a way that I had never seen before. Mm. And every single time, you know, and she would like mess with me and, you know, pinch my arm all light, you know, come on, come on, you know, get me used to the physical touch. Cause I couldn't even embrace somebody. I didn't even know how to give a hug. Wow. I didn't even know how to say, I love you. I was still even just stuttering to have a conversation at this point, which is wild when you think about the dialogue we're already having. And so, you know, people say, love me, you know, love me to death. No, I think it's different when you can love somebody to life. You love them to life. And that's what she did for me. Wow. That's powerful, dude. So, so, um, and this was, was, is this in Yuma? Uh, this is, I was in Yuma. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you're 15 and a half. That means you're in what? Ninth grade, 10th grade, somewhere in there. Halfway through my ninth grade year, I moved in with her, okay. finished my ninth grade year at the same school, and then moved finally one last time. And I had been to different schools my whole childhood, every single year, wow. sometimes multiple times per year. For final, like finally one time I had some stability living with her. And I spent my last three years in high school at the same high school. Wow. And um, do, do you feel like... Um looking back, do you feel like that's where in the story, that's where things started to stabilize for you a little bit? Like, did you get into sports or anything like that in school? I did. I started playing basketball my freshman year when I still lived with my father. Um, I tried to try out for the football team. Um, I was going to make the football team. My dad said it was cramping his style and I wasn't home to cook dinner. Um, so wow. he didn't allow me to play football, but he did allow me to play basketball. And I, and I want to tell this piece of the story because I think it's so important in the choices that we have. You know, I have been reaching out to my aunt subsequent to me moving in with her. And we were trying to concoct a way um, to work with Child Protective Services to get her custody of me. Now, mind you, this is 30 years ago. Yeah. And so once she filed um, an official case against my father, I had to wait either for them to do a health and welfare check that week or for him to hit me again. And Jeez. it took two days at that point for him to hit me again. Thank goodness. And I'm, you know, in this, in this event that happened, I'm sitting on the steps. I'm, I'm talking to my friends. He's drunk and passed out and told me, don't move off the steps of this apartment, this apartment we lived in. And there's a young girl and now my, I'm 15 and a half. Right. So this is yeah. a funny part of the story. There's a young girl. She grabs my hat. She takes off running. And I, I like this girl, you know? And so there's six of us together. We all mm -hmm. take off running. I'm chasing her. And she's like, you can't catch me. And, um, you know, my, in my 15 and a half year old testosterone, um, hormone fueled <laughs> body, like she's right. running the sunlight's hitting her blonde hair. It's like this golden sheen coming off of it. I'm chasing <laughs> her. We're laughing. It's like slow motion Baywatch in my head. Right. And I catch her. <laughs> And she turns around and she gives me a hug. It gives me my hat. And our friends are there. Like, I remember I wanted so bad to give her a kiss. I just didn't have the Christian at that point. Right. But our euphoria was broken by hearing my father coming from down the street towards us, screaming like, boy, what did I tell you? And 
he punched me in the side of my face in front of all my friends, in front of bystanders walking their dogs and their kids in the early evening time and knocked, knocked my hat to the side. And I said, dad, I'm just getting my hat and I'm starting to cry and I'm embarrassed and I'm, I'm you know, it's horrific in this moment and I'm scared. And he punches me in the, my head again with his left hand and my hat falls to the ground. And I think this is important because in this moment, I had allowed my entire life for me to be in fear of what I was going to do. And in those mm -hmm. moments to make choices, it doesn't make the choices that I made wrong, but in those moments that I had choices, I let fear control what I was doing. This moment, this night was the first time I chose to fight for myself. And mm -hmm. I can hear my aunt saying, next time he hits you, I'm sorry, you have to go through this. CPS won't allow me to take you yet. Just run. And I bent down and the, the, the asphalt you know, it's like 100 and it was 110 that day. And so the asphalt's still hot, um, you know, even though it's the evening sun at this point. And I remember looking up at him and he's just looking down at me and this pain that this man went through, my father went through from the, the sexual abuse he went through as a kid from a babysitter and a man that lived in the neighborhood that he never controlled is staring down at me. The generational cycle is continuing. And I had a choice, like, am I going to fight for me? Am I going to fight for my life that I need to live, or am I going to go back to what I feel like is the safety of this horrifically abusive apartment that I lived in with my father? And I just ran, you know, my brain's going a million miles an hour. I'm thinking of every single contingency plan. And I just ran. And in that moment, even though I was running, I, I was fighting for me. And that allowed me six months later to testify him in court and show up in a different way than I would have otherwise, because every time from that point moving forward that I stepped or, or ran through that fear that would paralyze me, it became easier and easier and easier to the point where I am now, where I don't let fear stop me at all. But it all starts with that initial choice that we have to really make that move. And by making that move that night, um, it really changed my life. So to me, that was the single biggest impactful life-changing moment that I've ever been through because without that, I would have continued to endure the abuse. Yeah. And I almost tried to take my life at 13. No doubt. I probably would have did it again, or I would have did something that would have landed me in jail. So the healing process didn't change overnight. It's not like I felt amazing after I testified right. against him or six months into did, the six months into my aunt. I just, it, it changed me over time. Did, did, did in that moment, First off, did you get your hat? Did you pick it up before you ran? I did. And I put it back on, I think, while I was running. Why, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> right. in the moment, you're just going. <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking about the hat, too. Um, so, so in that moment, though, that you were running, he, uh, uh, did he come, did he chase after you at all? He didn't, but I could hear, I felt like he was, and this is, I was scared of him. Right. So this is the yeah, fear. Right. And I could hear him yelling, boy, you better get over here. One, two. And, and in my mind, he's right on me, but he didn't run. He's standing there screaming, but he couldn't have caught Usain Bolt. Couldn't have caught me that day. That fear <laughs> of 60, almost 16 years of just violence that I lived in. Yeah. Like there wasn't a chance anybody would catch me. So, um, and, and I didn't realize until we got around the corner and I kind of turned and looked. He wasn't running after me. I just right. didn't even turn around and look. I just went for it. Wow. So, so that's the, so you ran where to your aunt's house? 
no, my aunt lived 30 minutes away. So we ran, um, we ran all the way around the corner and then we backtracked to the apartments was probably like six or seven buildings. We backtracked yeah. to my friend's house who lived a couple buildings over um, from me. I mean, literally hiding behind cars, all six of us hiding behind cars, mm-hmm. being like as sleuthy as possible, like, you know, going in between cars and then getting back there and calling my aunt who called the cops and my father was arrested that night. Wow. So, so talk about what, I mean, so you end up that day, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't want to assume anything, but, um, you ended up at your aunt's house. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're right. And, um, he got arrested Mm -hmm. and, um, you, where, where did, where did things go from there? I mean, so, so he gets arrested, um, we know back then they probably weren't as hard on, on abusers as they are now. Um, did he stay in jail for a while? Did he bond out? What happened in those few days surrounding that? So in the few days surrounding that two things happened. One was happening to me emotionally in those moments, right? Because I felt horrific that I was putting my father in jail, but it was also one of the most empowering moments I'd ever lived. Yeah. Because I did really choose me in that moment. And Tracy, I see you down there, my friend. You said running for my life. I was actually running into my life. Yeah. Running into yeah. my life and where I was going. And and so, no, my, my grandfather actually bonded him out of jail. Wow. And my aunt, we talked about this a few weeks ago when she was, um, she still lives in Yuma. She was visiting me from a couple hours away. And she said she was so upset that my grandfather bailed him out. And he said, well, what do you, what do you want me to do? And, you know, I told her, I said, the goal wasn't to ever keep him in jail. Like, I didn't have that anger and disdain in the way, because I still love my father. I just didn't love myself the way that I needed to at that moment. Because right. children that were abused don't ever stop loving their parents. They still do. And and, and what, what happened in the next six months, Ken, before we went to, um, before we went to a court, I, my stutter started to subside. I could actually give somebody a hug. My grades improved massively. Um, I stopped hanging out with the same kids that I was hanging out with because I was smoking cigarettes and like doing all the things that I, the stereotypes say that I should have did. And I started to find happiness that I never knew that I had. And I stopped surviving the moments that took me to the brink of my sanity. And I started to thrive really for the first time um, by making that decision to run. And then by being able to accept the love that my aunt was trying to give me too. And, and learn how to trust an adult because every adult I'd ever known had hurt me up until that point. Jeez. Wow. So your grandfather, meaning your, your aunt and your father's father. My aunt's father, but my father had a different father, but yeah, the only father my dad ever knew. Good Lord have mercy. Um, So did things did, did you end up in court after that? What, what happened? We did. So we ended up, we ended up in court and, you know, I write about this uh, in my memoir too. I, the smells, the oak, all of it. I can still picture it so vividly in my head. We end up in court. My dad's representing himself. I've got a state's attorney. My dad has the six of us separated because he's going to use the, um, the idea that everybody thinks right-handed, but he punched me with his left hand because he was left-handed. He asked every one of those kids 
Now sheriff's watching over us outside the courtroom. We're bringing us in one at a time. Which hand he hit he hit me with? And every single the other five said his your left hand. So I get in the courtroom. And he's frazzled. He's pissed because his defense is broken. Right. And so that whole entire idea that he had is crumbling underneath his feet, right? And I get on the witness stand, and he starts to berate me almost immediately. And the judge stops and says, Mr. McKinley, if you talk to your son like that again, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. So he continues his line of questioning. And this is where I say that choice to run mm -hmm. gave me the courage to do what I did next in this moment. And he's saying, I didn't hit you. Like I was trying to grab the hat off of your head. You know, you're lying. And he's like berating me on the court again. And, and I, I'll never forget. I sat up in my chair and, and, and this new bravery and courage that I had found six months earlier came to the surface. And I said, you know, you're lying. You know, you've been hitting me and you know, you've been doing it since I was born. And I'm just like yelling in the courtroom. And he turns around and he goes, and you could tell it pissed him off. He's like, boy. And the judge said, you know what, Mr. McKinley, I've heard enough. I've heard enough because if you treat your son this way in my courtroom in front of everybody in here, I can only imagine what you treat this boy like at home. And he looked at wow. me and he said, son, you could get down. And, you know, I went back and I stood next to my attorney and he convicted my dad of felony child abuse in that moment. And, and wow. this is another really life pivotal moment for me, Ken. In that moment, I sat back and there wasn't jubilee in the courtroom. It was like, yay, you won. No, it was <laughs> right. freaking horrific, right? right? It's terrible. Right. And they're leading my dad away in cuffs and he's glaring at me and I'm bawling. But in the moment, I sat back and I thought, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. Like, I, I will never be hit again. Like, it's over in the moment. And I re it really allowed me to live in a different way because the judge gave full custody of my aunt on that day, instead of me being awarded the state and her having it, she actually got physical full custody of me, all the paperwork. And I knew that I would be okay from that point moving forward. Um, and like I said, it wasn't like I wasn't doing things and I almost robbed a store after that at 19. I was getting crazy yeah, because I was in anger and pain and shame and embarrassment and all those things that come with trauma, but it did allow me the opportunity to move forward. And it allowed me to see that I could fight for myself and I had more courage than I ever thought that I would have before six months before that, when I ran and chose my life. Wow. <clears throat> so how much time did he do or did he go to prison? Did he go? What, what happened? He didn't. And can you mentioned a, a little while ago, you said back wow. in the day, there wasn't, it yep. wasn't the same. Um, and so he did, I think he did a couple of weeks in jail at that point, um, bonded out, did probation for years. Um, and you know, there, he couldn't get federal jobs and he couldn't get other things cause it was always on his record. Um, but it yeah. wasn't like it was today. The level of abuse that I went through by him and every, all the adults, um, they absolutely would have gotten years now. Yeah. It just yeah. was 30 years ago and it wasn't the same, um, you know, wasn't the same. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. And, and so you, you stayed with your aunt. Did, was there anybody I mean, did your mom, your dad, did anybody try to come back and say, hey, this is my kid. I want him back. My dad tried with the um, the caseworkers, threatened to put them on 2020, that they took me away from him. And, um, you know, he tried to, like, bully his way to get me back. But court documentation saved me. Um, I actually hadn't seen my mom at this point since I was 10. I was 16 now. And I didn't see her until I was um, 19, almost 
actually I was 20 at that point. So um, I hadn't seen her during a stretch of my life for 10 years. And, and honestly, Ken, it was because she was um, broken and hurt herself, even though she maybe wanted to love her kids, that want was always there, but the capacity to do so wasn't because she hadn't healed from her life traumas either. Dude, Jiminy Christmas. And she was living in Indiana. My mom was in Southern California, Oregon. Oh. I mean, she was kind of all over the place during this time with my little sister. Um, and and not to throw another wrinkle in this, but then my older sister was living in foster care during this point too. It's a it's a it's a lot of different tales to weave um, within the scope wow. of my life, <laughs> dude. So so you you're so you're with your aunt and um, you're sixteen. You're um, you feel a little bit um, braver because you were able to confront and, and, and handle that. Um, where did things go for you from that point? I know at 19, you enlisted in, in the Navy, um, but between 16 and 19, how were things? It was good while I lived with her. I mean, I, I played basketball. That was my sport. Um, she put a hoop up outside. We lived in a little single wide trailer. We didn't have a lot of money, uh, yeah. but it didn't matter. What we had was love. Um, That's what right. I had was safety, right? It wasn't about anything that would have made me happy. It was about what fulfilled me in here that did. And so, um, you know, her husband, Rick, taught me how to drive. And so it was just um, a, a great kind of like family dynamic that was happening there. Um, they did end up getting divorced when I was um, 17, which was tough. Um, but your, um, your aunt, of, mm-hmm. um, yeah, okay. yeah. And, who's, and, and, Steph- who's Stephanie? Is that your wife? Stephanie's my wife. Oh, Stephanie's hi, my wife, Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <is> she <laughs> she's yeah, yeah. So, so they got a divorce, and you you stayed there. Now you said you were playing basketball, like. In school on the team, were you playing? I was, I was. And, and honestly, wow. that was my therapy. That was where I could get out some of that physical aggression that I needed to get yeah. out. I started lifting weights. I was a really skinny, frail kid. And I started lifting weights, started to bulk up because I felt like I needed to do that in case I ever had to protect myself. And um, I just spent those three years of high school, one, trying to acclimate, right? I'm moving to a different school. So it's all new friends once again. Um, but that also helped me through the rest of my life, being able to make friends quickly and relate to people quickly. And, yeah. and then I went and I'll tell this story because it's right before I went in the Navy. So I'm, I'm 19 years old. I moved out on my own when I was 18. I just wanted to make my way. So I lived in my car for a little while. Um, I could have went to my grandma's or my aunt's. I just wanted to find out and, and make my own way. And so I'm 19. Um, at this point, I'm living with a buddy of mine. We case out a circle K um, convenience store. We're getting ready to rob it, have guns, ski masks, the whole nine. This is where I feel like in divine intervention. So there's a couple key points where God really showed up in my life. This is one of them because we're two days away from robbing this store. We got the time, the place, multiple exit routes, guns, ski masks. We knew when this one older guy was working when, so we could like subdue him and not hurt him, but then steal the money. We, it wasn't even for the money. It was the rush at the time because I didn't care about my own life. And I just was going through this tumultuousness internally for me. It was like the, the God on one shoulder, the devil on the other. It was yeah. really that dichotomy between both ears. And my buddy's mother gets sick two days before. 
Now, Ken, this is a long time ago. Deathly mm -hmm. ill. They think she's going to pass away. So he drives five hours, hitchhikes actually, five hours from Yuma to Tucson, Arizona to see his mother. His mother's still alive today. She's an amazing lady. He's still my friend today. Both of us have done really well. He takes off. I've got some time to be by myself. And I start thinking to myself, what am I doing? Like, really, what the <laughs> hell am I doing? I'm going to end up in right. prison or right. dead if I continue down this track. And I knew I wanted more. But then, like I said, it was the devil on one side, just the anger and the pain. Yeah. And my grandma called me over to her house. And, and I'll never forget this moment with her. She's, she sits me down. And I tell her, she just knows, you know, like, like sometimes my grandma and I were super close um, and, and she just knows. And she's like, you're not doing the right thing. And I was like, no, I'm really angry. She said, you need to go into the military. You need to go into the military and get out of here because there's nothing good for you here. And it was like every place I went, Ken, it was remembrance of all the abuses I've been through. Right. Yep. lived in so many different apartments and lived in our car for a while with my dad. Like there were so many different things happening there. The apartment where I almost took my life at 13. Like there's so many things. Yeah. And I just said, screw it. I, I got to get out of here. Like I'm literally going to go to jail or, or prison or end up dead if I don't. And so within two weeks of that conversation with my grandmother, I was in the Navy. Wow. And as I flew on a plane to the Navy, I thought to myself, this is my chance. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows what I've been through. Like this is my chance to live the life that I never thought I was going to be given. This is my chance to really step through those things that I need to work through and really live in abundance and happiness and joy and change. And I didn't know change the generational cycle then. Right. And never. Right. So I said, I, instead of that, I'm like, and never let this stuff happen again in my family forever. Like now I got control of that. Yeah. And that moment on that plane and then the subsequent 20 years of my military career really did change my life. So did you go to Great Lakes? I did. They had closed Orlando and San Diego. That was the only one open. I missed it by about two months. <laughs> Could have went to Orlando. Dang it. <laughs> my 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 brother, my brother was in the Navy for 10 years and he he went to Great Lakes. And back back then, you know, they allowed the families to come for graduation. So I I um I went. It was pretty cool. So mm -hmm. um so you went to Great Lakes Naval, what's it called? Naval Training Center? Naval Recruit or... Training Command. Yeah. RTC. There you go. There, yeah. Um, so you were, which by the way, for anybody watching is, were you there in the winter? Or I left the beginning of November, just after my birthday on no uh, November 11th, I left and my birthday was November 4th. So I did 20 pushups for my birthday for oh. the drill instructor. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was my gift. <laughs> so you you missed the winter and in, in uh that's in um um great it's in Illinois. Is it Illinois or Wisconsin? It's Illinois, yeah. Illinois, Illinois. Mm -hmm. It's up there and it's cold. It's really, really cold. Yeah. It gets bad up there. So in um is it uh Waukegan? Waukegan, Illinois, I think, or I, I don't know, somewhere way up there. Um <laughs> So where did you go from there after boot camp? Yeah, so I, I, I want to tell this funny. I like to tell this story. Let me tell you this funny story. So I get I get to boot camp, right? And like we're in the bus from the airport. The, the big, huge black gates of the Great Lakes, it opens up. And I'm like, here's my new life. I'm going to go live it. And we right. jump off the bus. And the recruit drill instructors, they're screaming in people's faces, Ken. 
you, yeah. they're militarizing you right off the bat, right? So I get in there and they're like, boy, he's literally this close to me spitting in my face, you know, this close <laughs> to me screaming. And I'll never forget this because I'm triggered in this moment. Yeah, and I'm a 19 year old. If you're a guy, if you're a woman or, or kid, I'm going to be so protective of you. But if you're a man, like I will put some hands on you really quick. And I'll never forget. <laughs> I looked at this guy like, who the F are you talking to? Like, <laughs> and then he pushes me and everybody's running. Right. So he's like, go, go, go. And, and, and everybody's running towards this building. And I'm like, it snaps me out of it in the moment. Cause I, I was going to physically grab him at that moment. Cause he's so close to my face. It just triggered yeah. me. And he's the drill emotional. instructor. And I'll never forget, I can see them working their way back down the line towards me again. And I had to think to myself in this moment, okay, none of this is personal. <laughs> like, they're not out to get you. They're not going to hurt you. This is part of the process. This was, I think, one of the first times I was ever able to respond to my environment versus reacting to my environment because I was triggered. And, and, and the next time they came and yelled, then I just played the game um, for yeah. the next couple of months while we were there. So, so I ended up actually after this, and I love that, Stephanie, you're on, babe. Love you, too. Um, I ended up after this um, going to to Groton, Connecticut, because I was going to be on submarines. That was the, oh, wow. um, the the job that I chose and ended up um, meeting my wife while I was there. She was a freshman in college. I was new to the Navy. And in that moment, like God really gifted me somebody to love me in a way that I always wanted to be loved, especially from the opposite sex. And so we've been together 25 years and married wow. 23 years next month. And we just have wow. grown together. We have loved together. We have learned together. We have struggled in our marriage together. We have overcome those things together. And so, but in that moment of me going to Groton, Connecticut, you know, I could have went to the left or I could have went to the right. And on the right side was her and just being able to not only accept her love, but because my aunt showed me how to give love too, now I was able to give love in a healthy way. So all that dynamic all works together. It's all for you, right? In those moments, even the horrific stuff is for you because I wouldn't be the husband. I wouldn't be the father I am today without the perspective of the things that I went through that allow me to live the life the way that I live it today. Wow. That's so awesome. So in what part, what town in Connecticut? Gr Groton? Groton, Connecticut, though, I think the only thing they're famous for is the submarine base. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all they it's got. not that famous. I've never heard of it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Unless you're actually in the Navy, I don't think you've heard of it. And I think even some people in the Navy have never heard of it. So it's right, not very big. Right. So, so, so you were on a sub? I was for a short period of time. Then the Navy said I had asthma um, oh, and took me off of submarines. Not only this, Ken, I think this is so important because this is the life happens for you mentality. I feel like we should all adopt. And I know you have it personally. Yeah. And yep. disqualified from submarines um, right when I got on. Like I had been on there three or four months. We're getting ready to get underway. Super excited. The CO knows my name. The command master chief, knows, like all these senior people know my name because I got there and I had four months until Stephanie joined me down in Virginia at this point. Yeah. And I'm, so I'm, I'm a hot runner. That's what they call it, hot runner. And so I'm getting my qualifications, but I'm bringing people with me to work on theirs at the same time. So we could study together. Yeah. Um, so what normally takes 18 months we're accomplishing in three and four months. And so I get disqualified from submarines, disappointment, bam, right. Go to yeah. a command, meet my first mentor, male mentor I've had in my life at this point have for me disqualification so that I can meet this male mentor um, that 
got me to apply for an officer program. Then I get disqualified from the officer program. Why? That I got accepted for because of asthma. The Navy was downsizing back then. Disappointment, right? For you, not to you. Wow. Disqualified from the officer program. I'm pissed because I'm in Japan and the Navy's telling me I'm not worldwide deployable as an officer, but I am enlisted. So I'm just going to get out. I don't care. Ended up at another command a couple years later with my second life mentor that was a man who reinvigorated wow. me for the Navy. And I became an officer at that point, 10 years into my career instead of four. So six years later, Ken. But here's wow. the deal. Had I made it after four years, I would have been going to sea every two. I would have been a surface warfare officer. I would have lived out to sea and not been able to cultivate this family that I have. But because it happened at 10 years and I was an intel specialist, became an intel officer, I didn't have to go to sea as much. I still did my sea time, but it sure. wasn't back-to-back sea times, right? For you, not to you, even though you can't see why it's for you in those moments. And so um, for me, like all of these things and learning that life was happening for me in each little increment has allowed me to live an incredibly powerful life where even disappointments are met with the mentality of how do I learn from these? So were you based out, were you based out of Norfolk? I was, I I mean, I've been all over. So we did a tour in Japan. Um, I did a tour in San Diego, two different tours out of Norfolk, Virginia, Washington, DC and Jacksonville, Florida. And, and you said you did see, you did your time at sea, did your time at sea. That's so funny. Um, but so were, were you on a carrier, a battle? I mean, what, what, if you weren't in a submarine, like they weren't, you weren't floating around on a yacht. What were, what were you on? (laughs) Yeah, it definitely wasn't a yacht or it was, it was a big gray steel yacht. Um, and so I was on both times I went to sea. Uh, and we went on deployments. I was on carriers both times. So typically okay. the there's an intelligence center on those, the admiral for the battle groups on there. So we support that. So the carrier was fun. I mean, had multiple different restaurants, yeah. <laughs> what do we call them a restaurant, <laughs> places to eat, had gyms. It was like a floating city with yeah. 5,000 people on it. I loved it. Yeah, they're they're huge. I've I've been on them. Um, they're they're for anybody that hasn't, you, you need to make an arrangement to do a do a carrier tour because it's mm. it's amazing. Um, so so which carrier was it? So I was on. I, I must be the person who helps decommission carriers. So I was on the Kitty Hawk in Japan when I was there. Okay. They decommissioned it right after I left, and then I was on the Enterprise when I was in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and they wow. decommissioned that after I left. So speaking of which, if you go watch Top Gun, you'll see the Enterprise. Yeah. That's what they're flying off of in their early uh, views. So <laughs> my wife and I are going to see Top Gun tonight, actually. So um, I already have the tickets. But so so the um, and my and my brother was on two different carriers. One got decommissioned while he was in um, I, the um i forget which one then then he ended up on he was on the saratoga i think the first Mm -hmm. time and then the john c stennis was the second second one so out of norfolk but i it was weird because he lived in like newport news and then but he was also out of jacksonville or something i i don't know anyway um my my wife's watching too her her uncle dennis was on the kitty hawk Awesome. I love it. Yeah. My grandfather yeah. was actually on there. 
back wow. in Vietnam. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy, man. So, so you, so, okay. You decided to make a career out of the military, which I don't know what the percentages are, but I would assume it's somewhat of a low percentage of people that go into the military and make it a full blown career and retire. Yeah, it is. And honestly, I didn't think I was going to make it a career. Not when I was enlisted anyway. Um, you know, it was kind of like an ends to a means to get me out of Yuma, get me some college money, allow me to do some of these things. And I, I just, I met Stephanie early on and then we ended up getting married a couple of years later. So I felt like I had the responsibility of now helping take care of her. And sure. so we chose, we chose at that point to stay in. And at 10 years, I was going to get out. But like I said, that was when my second mentor showed up. He had been a former enlisted guy that became an officer. Um, and, and, and he really, I, so while I was there, I never lost my work ethic, Ken, right? I never lost a positive attitude, even through the disappointments. Yep. So my, my, my evaluations were always like number one or number two. And so at this command in Jacksonville, Florida, while I was there, I ended up being sailor of the year, ended up being the number one sailor, even in my command. Like I had all these accolades that were there. And I said, you know what, what the hell? Like I, I still want to be an officer. That goal that I had when I first joined the Navy is still there. I'm going to give it another shot because the Navy at this point is after 9-11. So they're, yeah. they're like upsizing again. Yeah. And now my asthma wasn't a disqualifier. And so I put an officer package in. I'll never forget the sessions officer called me and he said, hey, out of 161 packages, you were the only one selected. And that wow. was because I had been sailor of the year and I, you know, I had a great yeah. endorsement from admirals and some other stuff on there. So um, really just a blessing that I had people in my corner and championing for me um, just like I do now. I mean, I, yeah. I, this life, if you put favor on yourself, you'll find it in your life. And so, um, you know, you find those blessings, like you'll find that you're being blessed along yep. the way, but it's all your mentality and your attitude about it. So, and then once I became an officer at 10 years, I knew there was no doubt I wasn't going to retire. And so I finished my last 10 years. We had two kids. Um, life is great. They're, one's a graduate from high school now. One's a freshman um, in high school. And um, just live this blessed existence until I went so to corporate America. When, when you, but when you, you said you became an officer. So you went to college while you were in the, in the Navy. I did. I had finished my degree. A lot of night school. So getting up, being at work at 6 a.m. to run the physical fitness program, um, being at sure. work all day and then going to night school. Yeah. Um, even when we had kids, but especially before getting home at 10, 11 p.m. Um, and then turning around and doing it day over day. So I did. I finished my degree, was able Good to get you. my college degree using tuition assistance with no no debt. Um, and then once I had my degree, it was that was the decision point at that 10 year point. Okay, now you have your degree, you can apply again and become an officer, you know, within three months of officer candidate school, or you can finish your last two years in the Navy, get to 12 years and then transition out. And so I made the choice at that point, because that mentor that I had, that boss that I had really reinvigorated me yeah. for my own career because <clears throat> of his and the things that he got me involved in that were so far outside of my pay grade, that kind of just challenged me in a way I hadn't been challenged in a few years. Yeah. Um, and 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 which is why I was sailor of the year and all those other things. Right. So, yeah, and right. then, and then literally um, went to officer candidate school for three months after that and spent my last decade as an officer. It was great. What, what, uh, where does it start in the Navy? Is it petty officer? Where's, um, no seaman recruit. E1 oh. is a seaman recruit. E4 is a petty officer. So, Oh, okay. 
What what level did you reach? So I reached first class petty officer. So E6 on the enlisted side, um, I was up for E7. Wow. And then on the officer side, I made it to O3, um, a lieutenant. And then I declined O4, leaving the Navy because I, I wasn't going to do two years that you have to obligate to serve to the Navy if you take the rank. I wasn't uh, going to do that. And I said, just give it to the person that didn't get it, the next person in line that didn't right. get it because I'm not taking it. And so um, after wow. some bantering back and forth with the, 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 the people that make those decisions, they finally allowed me to truly rescind um, wow. that 04 and give it to that person who was deserving, who needed it for the rest of their career. Because my career at that point at 20 was done. I was ready to transition. Wow. That's incredible, man. My nephew's in the Navy right now. He's, he's over in Norfolk. He's, he's, um, what's the, um, the, he does the medical field. And HM is what, Corman, Corman is what they call it. Probably. Yeah. Corman. Yeah. He's yeah, I think that's what he's doing. Anyway, so um, so you well again, a lot of people are saying thank you for your service. I'll say it again. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Um, Bob Dinell asks a great question. What's the greatest lesson you learned from being in the military? For me, it was teamwork, man, because I would have been an individual had I kept going down my path. And so mm. the value of working amongst a team the value of bringing a diverse set of skills to the table helped me become an executive in a very short period of time within four years in corporate America um, and, and, and really has helped me work with other people in my life and bringing people together in a movement that's far more profound than what we're able to do um, in our capability because we're doing it together versus us moving in individual lanes in our life. So to me, it's just the power of team and it's a, like a family, man. It's like, you, you really create this family environment yeah. um, where you work at in the, in the military and people literally die for each other because of that brother and sisterhood you have. So for me, it was like that family atmosphere and then that team first attitude um, that I've taken with me my whole life. So when you got out of the Navy um, 20 years, which is amazing, um, where did you go? I mean, I know my brother got out at 10 or at six years and he did four, then re-enlisted for two and then, then left and mm -hmm. spent a year as a civilian and went, this is BS and went back to the Navy for four more years. Um, and then he's like, this is real BS. I'm out of here. <laughs> but, but, so, <laughs> after 10, so, but, but, you know, when you got out, it's, it's different as a civilian. It's way, 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 way different mm -hmm. as a civilian than, than being in the, in the military. So where did things go? You keep saying corporate life. Where did you go? Once you get out of the Navy, you're an officer, you're in charge. You got people saying yes, sir, no, sir. Um, and now you got to enter the corporate world where you might, you might be the one saying no, sir, yes, sir. Right. It, it's true. It's true. And so luckily my ego, cause I was enlisted for 10 years. I didn't really care about the whole saluting yes or no, sir thing. It oh. didn't really, it didn't drive my ego personally. Cause I was the right. person for a decade saying it. And so, right. but what, but what, what it did. So uh, a person I had mentored literally at this point, 17 years early, he was like my little brother. Um, when I was stationed in Japan on the Kitty Hawk, he was 17. I was 24. He loved wow. basketball. He was from Arizona. He went through an abusive childhood. I kind of just took him under my wing, put my arm around him, took him under my wing. 
Well, he was a director for a company here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I knew I wanted to move closer to home um, in Phoenix for you guys who don't know is about three hours from my hometown because my sister and stuff lived here and I wanted to be around my nephew and um, create more of that family dynamic I wanted. So we decided um, to move to Phoenix and start this corporate career. And he got me the interview with his company and I became an assistant director there. But you're right, Ken, right? It was like, and I think this is where veterans struggle in the transition sometimes. I was managing global operations for the Navy's human intelligence program. That was my job. I had, you know, over a hundred people, 20 different sites around the world doing really cool stuff. And wow. in this moment, I had to transition and say, okay, like now I'm going to be an assistant director. I still had some responsibility, but the, not the same scope. Yeah. But I didn't care. I knew I didn't have the hard skills yet. I knew the leadership would shine through, but I knew I didn't have the hard skills yet to be successful for a decision that might cost my company $20 million. When I can make a decision in the military and there's not, there might be a life cost, which is, yeah. you know, the gravity of that's important, but there's not a monetary cost to it. So um, I went, I was an assistant director. I was promoted three times in four years, worked for one company for two years, went to another one for three years um, and, and did really well in corporate America. And then COVID hit and tripled our work um, in the fortune three that I worked for. Wow. And so I had a, a site in Tempe. Um, I had a, in Arizona, Arizona, I had a site in the Philippines. I had a site in El Paso, um, Texas. And then I had a site in La Palma, California. And so all this responsibility, life was great, making great money. And I think this is so important to the story because I want people to take this away today. COVID hit, tripled the work. I'm working 14 hour days, just grinding for almost 18 months straight. And I was I finally had a nervous breakdown and I'm, I'm an open book. Like I told you, kid, no pun intended. I, I worked myself literally to the point of having a breakdown. And there's a bunch wow. of people out there living in quiet desperation that are literally just not moving through the fear of taking a step into their life's purpose because of the comfortability of working for somebody else or doing something. And so what I found, I, I had this moment where I thought I was having a heart attack talking to my peer, shut the laptop. We go to the hospital. I, I literally think I'm having a heart attack. And it was my first ever and, and last so far, thank goodness, panic attack. 20 years in the military, all that stress, never had a panic attack because it was short stints, not sustained like it was in corporate America. And so here I am making more money than I ever thought I'd make. I got the boats and the house and the family. And from the outside looking in, you would say, Walt, has life by the cojones. <laughs> like, man, he's got everything. Like that societal square box that we fit in. People are like, he's got it. And I was freaking miserable inside. I yeah. was living in quiet desperation because, yeah. and I knew the culture of the company that I worked in where they were breaking the backs of the people wasn't for me. I couldn't take and develop my leaders like I wanted to because I was on meetings 12 hours a day with senior leaders. And then I'd only have two hours after that to pour into my leaders because they needed me too. And so in that moment where I had a choice to go back to corporate America and continue the crazy cycle, right? Even though it didn't align with me anymore and it wasn't my purpose, yeah. or I had a choice to step into this next phase of my life and what I'm doing now. And so we made the choice again. This is why choices, guys, my whole life. The choice to run through the fear of the safety of that income in corporate America and say, I'm actually going to do what I feel like my purpose is, turn this pain that I lived in as a child into my passion, into my purpose, and go out and talk about these to be a speaker, write a book, do all the things I've done, 
to let people know their history doesn't define their legacy. And if I can change, if I can do it and I can find joy and I can find happiness, the only thing separating me from the next person next to me is the choice I made to go all in on that, chase that happiness down with a fervor that I never thought possible. And then just bask in the joy because the things don't provide joy. Success needs to be measured on the level of your happiness, not what you bought or what you can buy. Yeah. So I get fired up. Let's go. <laughs> I agree. No, I agree, man. I agree. Although money is incredibly important. <laughs> like if you're going to do, you know, <clears throat> Grant Cardone is a friend of mine, as I think, you know, and, and mm. um, he talks about that a lot, you know, that I, I think a lot of people um, rationalize their um their 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 brokenness financially by saying well money doesn't buy happiness well right i I agree with that it doesn't but it it sure does make uh being miserable a little bit easier (laughs) so but but so 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 when you so you left the and so this was recently that you left the corporate I mean, within what the last six or 12 months, it was April 8th of last year. So what that's probably, I don't know, 16 months, 15 months now. So just over a year ago. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Good for you. And so how are things going? Things are going great. And, and, And here's the thing. I love that you talked about the money because even Grant Cardone, he is doing his purpose So he's making money because he's living in his purpose. He's making the money and he's happy, right? Ken, you are living in your purpose. And so, and you're making money because you're living in your purpose. And so corporate America leading leaders was my purpose. I love development of people. People have been so instrumental in my life. I loved it. So when that was taken away because I'm in all these executive meetings all day, um, I I lost my passion because I didn't care about the KPI or metrics. I cared about the development of people. And yep. so, so I, I left corporate America to align with my purpose of teaching people your history doesn't define your legacy. Wrote a number one best-selling book, uh, my memoir. Talk, I talk about the four keys to living an extraordinary life and how do you really heal from the trauma? Get ready to kick off master classes. I've been on newscasts all around the country, radio shows all around the country, and just really trying to remove the stigma of trauma, talking about your mental health, and then more importantly, just teaching people there's a better way and they can truly find that life's happiness if they allow themselves to run through the fear that's been stopping them from stepping into their own life's abundance, whatever that may be for each individual person. And, and as I start to make money, you know, I just got a great speaking gig in October. They, they went to my website, they, they talked about it, but I'm, I'm creating the income and the revenue from this business because I'm living in my purpose and because I'm making an impact. So the, the money's the cherry on top, which it allows you to live even more extraordinary. But the experiences I'm creating in the community we're creating and the movement we're creating um, on creating alternative legacies for other people, that's yeah. where my joy comes from. My joy isn't from buying another boat or, you know, like Grant Cardone has a plane. He may love his plane. He didn't find joy from buying the plane. He found joy from doing all the things that allowed him to purchase it. Right. And I think that's where people miss that a little bit. And they say money can't buy happiness. It can't buy happiness. You've got to be happy. But if you can live in service of others, 
and you can really live in your purpose and your passion and create that income in that and whatever that is for you. Yeah. And then you make money on it. <laughs> Man, like I, it's that's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary yeah, I, life. I totally agree. Totally agree. And and Bob Donnell has another great question. What's your process for making better decisions? Ooh, man. Let me tell you, Bob, I can be <laughs> reactive as all get out. Somebody pisses me off and I'm like, ooh, let me get it back, right? What I did is I had to really heal from my trauma first. And the process that I use now requires a lot of self-awareness, right? Emotional intelligence is huge, you guys. And being able to reflect and be vulnerable with yourself and align yourself authentically so that you understand how you react to certain things in life and you can shift yourself to responding. So it, there's a lot of moments now. Now I'm only like 85% good at this, guys. <laughs> like I'm still, <laughs> I still react, right? Most of the time I will temper my response until I can process that for a second. So I don't react to the, what's happening around me anymore. I don't, I don't do that. If I do react, and this is what's important, Bob, if I do react in those moments and I do something where later I'm like, damn it, I'm better than that. I will sit and I will reflect and I will go deeper. Why, when that person said this to me, did it hit me so deep? Why did I react negatively to what they just told me? Oh, it's because, you know, when, when they when they were like, you know, tested my manhood or whatever it was. Right. Right. That's because like I was told I acted like a girl. I was told to stop sniveling. I was told like I was basically pushed down my entire childhood. And so I got to go deep to that place to figure out why I was triggered as an adult. And I reacted the way that I did. And so self-discovery and emotional awareness is vital. So don't beat yourself up when you make a mistake, apologize in the times you need to. Um, but ask yourself, why did I really react to this situation the way that I did and get below that two or three surface level? We all stay in where it's easy yeah. and really get deep within yourself. And if you do that, you'll do a lot of discovery. And the next time those same things happens, you'll start responding. What that does, that raises your life floor. Every time you do that, your life floor goes up and your ceilings rising along with it. And yep. you just become better as a person because of it. So I hope that's helpful for you. So, and Bob is a um, very, very well-known. Um, he, he's, in fact, he's in Texas right now where the school shooting took place. He drove from California. He drove out there to help that community heal. Um, he is a, you should know Bob Donnell. He is a, he's, He's who introduced me to Mark Victor Hansen and he's so he's friends with Les Brown and all these amazing people. Um, so for the people watching, you know, I remember when I had Brian Tracy on the show and I said, and he was talking about the affirmations and the, the I am statements and how important all of those are. And I agree. I do them every single day of my life. But I said, Brian, you know, there, there are people watching this or will watch this that hear all this and they know that you're right. They know they should be doing this, um, but they don't. They don't. 
they they live in, and and I can relate to it and I know you can too man like you, you you live trapped in that fear you the fear of I want to quit this job and go do this or I want to you know whatever it is like there there's something it's always fear based right mm-hmm. there's something holding that person back from getting to their purpose, to getting to the next level in life, to, to leveling up, to, to helping more people, to giving more to the world, all of the things like, what do you say to somebody who, um, is watching or listening or on the live or on the replay, um, that might be trapped right now? They're trapped. They, they know there's more to life. We, don't you think we all feel that? Like we know there's more. Yes. Right. What do you say to that person that, that to help them get past the fear, to get unstuck, to break through that wall, to go, to chase their dreams, pursue that passion that they, they have deep down inside? I, I love that you talk about fear because we all know we've heard it. Fear is a liar. And the first thing I would tell somebody is you're not alone. Mm. I talked about it. I was living in quiet desperation even a year ago, having the success, fearful of leaving the income of that job because I have a, a two, two daughters and a wife. Ken, you just talked about it. Brian Tracy's talked about it. There's so many people who've talked about this because we understand. That's the thing is we have lived this journey. And so we provide the inspiration through talking, through doing podcasts, through doing these things. But more importantly, What we're providing is the belief. There's nothing special about all of us, but the decisions we've made to run through the fear. And those people who are living in quiet desperation about a decision point, I think this is important. We don't look at our life resumes enough. We don't look at our life resumes enough. And there's people who think they can't make it. They can't go on. They live in this fear of like unlocking these boxes of trauma, what that might, what might happen afterwards. But if they look at their life resume and they say, What's happened every time I've ran through the fear? Because I will tell you unequivocally, 99.9999% of the time, every time that you've ran through the fear, every time that you said, I'm going to fight for me, every time that you said, I'm not going to be a victim or survivor, I'm going to be a warrior, I'm going to be a fighter, I'm going to own my power of my story. Every time you've made a decision to leave a job and go to another one, leave a relationship and go to another, whatever that is for you, look at your life resume. Every single time you've done it, I can almost guarantee on the other side of that fear was abundance of some sort, was joy, happiness, money, like like empowerment, whatever that is. And when you get yourself out of your self-doubt and your self-limiting beliefs and you take a step back and you see the forest through the trees of your life and you realize that every time you've ran through the fear, the other side of that has been just this basking of glow and the sunlight and this vibrancy that you didn't think you were going to have on the left side of that fear that you attained on the right side, you start to pour the belief into yourself. So we talk about it to give you the belief, but you already got the belief within you because you already won at times. You already ran through the fear in your life. So stop playing small and stop waiting for something to happen and go out and take action. Manifestation is nothing without action. And the action requires you to run through the fear, just like it required me to run through the fear of leaving my corporate career and a lot of money on the table last year. Ken, just like it, you had to run through the fear, right? And to do what you're doing. 
just like Grant Cardone from where he came from. He had yeah. to run through the fear and make it happen. Yeah. You can do it. I know you can. And I say that with the conviction that I do, because not only have I lived it, but I've seen it with hundreds and thousands of people. So stop playing small. Stop allowing the fear to paralyze you. Look at your life resume and then go after whatever that thing is that you're waiting on. Just do it. It's like that jumping off a cliff into the water, right? You know you're going to be safe when you hit the water. You know it's going to be fun. You're going to get this adrenaline rush and you say, one, two, I can't do it. <laughs> one, two, ah, I can't do it. And then eventually you say, right. one, two, three, and screw it, you go. And yep. when you make that leap and you're flying and you realize when you hit that water and you come up and you're like, oh, woo, that was amazing. That's what's happened every time you've ran through the fear. And that's what's going to happen this time when you run through the fear. So just go do it. Wow. I, I, I totally agree, man. We're on the same exact page. I'm going to pop your website up here, scrolling across the bottom. Um, everybody watching, make sure that you go check out waltmckinley.com. You wrote a book the number one best-selling book do you have a copy of it that you can hold up walt i do my my subliminal so this is the view that i had as an eight-year-old little boy and if you look close you can see the mask in there with me that he would throw down there with me to make it even scarier um and i chose monsters in my house because i lived with very hurt people who hurt me and i i did have monsters in my house but they didn't have to stay there and this is what i love look at the bat the light, mm. the abundance that's waiting for you to run through the fear, for you to choose you, and for you to continue to show yourself in your life resume that you can make anything happen that you wish to happen if you allow yourself to make the choice to run through the fear and the self-limiting beliefs and the self-doubt that can paralyze all of us. That it paralyzed me, paralyzed Kent, might be paralyzing you today, but it doesn't have to continue to do that. Make that choice today. Make that choice today. To Everybody make sure. that wall. Make, make sure that you you follow Walt on all social media platforms. I would imagine they're all on your website as well. Um, yeah. And and your name where it says special guest, that is not what it's it's actually an L. The font that I use, though, like makes it look like two T's. It's crazy. What the heck? Um, it's <laughs> Walt McKinley, not what. And that is an L and a T, I, I swear. <laughs> um, I just didn't have enough time to, to change fonts, but, um, make sure you go follow Walt McKinley, go to waltmckinley.com, follow him everywhere. And, and one, one last question, and you kind of a, have answered it. Um, Catherine Young says it, it's an excellent book. Um, so, so for, for someone that, um, feels like they've tried everything and they're at the end of their rope, you know, with, with COVID and all the insanity over the last couple of years, um, politics, everything is, has just been insane. Um, for the people who are just barely hanging on suicide went up dramatically mm -hmm. on a global level. For the people who are barely hanging on, feel like they've given everything and they're they're at the end of the rope. What do you say to them to help them to get through to the next moment? 
I've been, I've lived in your shoes. I really have lived in your shoes. And what's amazing is I've done a couple of talks recently. And at the end of every single talk or towards the end, I have people that stand up that have known somebody or have themselves been through different types of abuses, have been through different types of life traumas. And every time I do it, nobody sits. So often we can feel very alone in those moments in our own thoughts and like people don't understand. The power in those moments is showing people that nobody's alone. Every single person has a story. Every single person has life traumas that have happened to them. The one thing I tell people to do and what I see people shy away from because of the fear of being judged is they don't speak their truth. The most powerful thing I ever did was speak my truth for the first time in that courtroom to say the things that happened to me out loud. There's a lot of things therapy teach you, teaches you and counseling teaches you, but nothing is more cathartic or healing like speaking your truth for the first time. And you have somebody, you have somebody in your life, a trusted friend, a trusted family member, coach, like you can go to therapy. But if you really feel like you don't have somebody in your life, I want you to find me because I will give you the space to share your truth and I will help move you from being a victim or being a survivor of feeling like you just make, made it to owning the power of your story, to knowing that you matter, to knowing that you're seen, to knowing that you're loved, because I know what it's like to not feel that way. And if you're struggling, I know that's how you feel too, because that's when I almost took my life, that's how I felt. But there is a better way. There was light. There is abundance. There is joy at the end of the dark tunnel that you were in. You just need to align yourself with people who can walk you through this journey. And as you light that internal lighthouse inside for you, as that light shines bright, it will start to light the path in the darkness for other people. And as you light that path in the darkness for other people, and we get enough of us doing that, guess what? There's no more darkness. And so it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about us creating a community. More importantly, a community focused on creating a movement to change the world so that if you're out there struggling, you know unequivocally for a fact you're not alone. And I want you to know I love you. Even if you're struggling to love yourself, I love you. I see you. Your story matters. It's time to speak your truth. And it's time to find your joy and your happiness and your abundance that you deserve. I want you to know that. And I, man, like I could probably talk for 20 minutes in here right now into this camera talking about this because I feel it with the conviction that's in my soul because I've lived it and I'm still here. And guess what? You're still here too. That's You're right. still here. Made it through hundred percent of those things you thought you couldn't. So own your power, step into it, speak your truth and find that happiness that you're yearning for in your soul. Cause it's there. Promise you that. And your spirit's unbreakable. Your spirit's unbreakable. Amen. Keep taking a step, an inch, a mile, just take it. WaltMcKinley.com. You guys all need to go follow him. If you haven't shared this out, redeem yourself right now and click that share button. This is a very, very powerful story. Walt, you're an amazing human. Thank you so much for being on today and sharing your truth, your your story, your wisdom, your your um, your genuineness, man. That's that's the 
you know, people ask me, I, I've done over 3000 live streams and, and people ask me, how, how do you, how do you do it? How do you, and I'm like, just be real, be authentic. Don't try to be what you're not. Just be real. And, and, and your tribe will show up and, um, man, you're, you're definitely part of my tribe now. And I, I, I love you and I appreciate you. And I thank you for coming on and, and, and sharing so openly. Well, thank you, Ken. You know, I often tell people be blessed so that you can be a blessing. <clears throat> and I, I tell you, brother, you're blessed. And, and you blessed me today. You were a blessing for me by allowing me to be on your show and allowing me to be part of your audience. And I knew even once I just saw the name of your show, you know, break through walls. That's what we're all trying to do, but you don't have to do it by yourself. And can right. you're showing the world that you don't have to do it by yourself. There is a tribe. There are people here. And you've had, what'd you say, a thousand episodes. Like you're the, four, you're four, the king alive. Four. 400 and some, yeah. Or 400 yeah. and some. You're like the king alive, right? You're showing people that your history doesn't define your legacy and where you start doesn't have to be where you finish in life. I Amen. just love you for that, brother. Thank you. thank you. And thank you for being a blessing for me and allowing me on here today. And thank you to everybody who showed up today. I love you guys. This has been awesome. Everybody, make sure you go to waltmckinley.com. Follow Walt across all social media platforms and and sign up for his stuff whatever it is go sign up for it and and support this guy and help help the world become a better place walt thank you so much god bless you god bless you all have a great day and we will see you later thanks so much walt